Welcome to the Cloud Pod, where the forecast is always cloudy. We talk weekly about all things AWS, GCP, and Azure. We are your hosts, Justin, Jonathan, Ryan, and Peter. Episode 119, recorded on May 26, 2021. Oracle announces something amazing, and the Cloud Pod's worldview is shook. Good evening, Peter and Jonathan. How's it going? Good. Hey, Justin. Going well. Good, good. Uh, Ryan is still missing this week. He is uh, somewhere, he said, under a broken down motorcycle with a tent. And it's a great paperweight for the oh, tent no. because it's not moving anywhere. But he's having a great time somewhere in the desert enjoying himself. So we'll let him continue that. Hopefully he'll make it back next week. You know, we'll never know. You know so, But uh, he, uh, he is on his month- yearly sabbatical to the desert with his friends on his motorbike. So having a great time, it sounds like always. Yeah, I would not want to have to push one of those things out of the desert. No, that doesn't sound doesn't sound very pleasant. So, all right. Well, we have a general news story here today from HashiCorp. Uh, they are announcing support for the predictive scaling policy in the Terraform AWS provider. Uh, and so, this is basically a partnership between HashiCorp and AWS uh, to launch support for predictive scaling policy for EC2 auto scaling in the new Terraform AWS provider. Of course, predictive scaling uses ML to analyze the history of your auto scaling group in order to launch capacity levels in advance. And to leverage Terraform, you just add a few uh, simple configuration resources uh, to enable this. You'll need Terraform version 0.12 and the latest Terraform AWS provider to get your uh, predictive auto scaling going. You must already have had some auto scaling in place for it to have some kind of actions to know what it needs to scale on in the future right so like how, how does this how does this really help you like well i mean amazon even recommends when you implement the predictive auto scaler that you have to have uh you know normal auto scaling as well this is additive to normal auto scaling not a replacement for at this point so yes based on the fact that you need to know how auto scaled in the past yeah and it, this is when you when you run into people who are running on Amazon or cloud for the first time, using auto-scaling for the first time, this is what they envision auto-scaling is to begin with. I think a lot of them are let down when they realize they got to write the rules themselves and all of the edge case scenarios that can burn them. And, uh, and so I think, I think going in this direction is going to be hugely popular, especially for people new to the cloud. Yeah. I mean, I, I think what it really does is if you have historically scaled up at 9 a.m. because of load, then predictive scaling will help you scale up at 850 because of load and reduce that little blip in performance that you might otherwise see. Yeah. I, I really like this partnership, though, between HashiCorp and, and uh, AWS, the fact that they partnered together to do it uh, in the provider, which, you know, the more the, the cloud providers actually are supporting Terraform, the better Terraform comes for all of us. So I really like this just in general from the partnership side of it, which you already see from Google because they leverage Terraform pretty heavily for all theirs. Uh, and Azure, not as much, but, you know, starting to get there, which is great. But it's nice to see AWS joining the bandwagon. Yeah, yeah no, no, no open distro for uh, Terraform just yet. <laughs> <laughs> Ooh, that would be that would be interesting story. Yeah. I have a lot of friends at Terraform so. <laughs> and HashiCorp. <laughs> it's a little a little harder to uh, be on one side of that argument when it's not impacting people you know. Yep. So, well, AWS has a ton of news to counterprogram uh, Microsoft Build this week, <laughs> which is always fun when they start just dropping stories for no reason. Uh, up first is uh, the AWS Lambda extensions are now generally available with the new performance improvements and an expanded set of partners. Uh, for those of you who are new to Lambda extensions, Lambda extensions provide a simple way to extend the Lambda execution environment where your function code is executed. They allow for use cases like capturing diagnostic information before, during, and after function invocation, automatically instrumenting your code without needing code changes, fetching configuration settings or C 
secrets before invocation, detecting and alerting on function activity through security agents, and sending telemetry to custom destinations like S3, Kinesis, Elasticsearch, or uh, any of the other amazing uh, open telemetry solutions that are out there. Uh, the GA release brings you faster responses, such as as soon as the function code is completed without waiting for the extensions to finish. And this enables extensions to perform activities like sending telemetry to preferred destination after the function's response has been returned. Uh, there's also several new launch partners, including Imperva, Instana, Sentry, Site24, and AWS Distro for open telemetry, uh, all joining the beta partners like Datadog, Splunk, New Relic, and all the normal people you guys love and know. That's really cool. They're taking taking the, the reporting and the logging and the observability pieces out of the out of the loop of getting that data back to the customer faster is is great. I mean, you still pay for it though. You're still paying for the compute and the memory time for those things to execute. But yes, you're right. In the transaction itself, you're no longer now feeding New Relic or feeding other things uh, to get that before you go, which is nice. This is pretty limited availability, though, in regions. It's only in Virginia, Ireland, and Milan regions today. I do hope this gets rolled out pretty quickly because I think it's a great service, but uh, not a lot of not a lot of availability to you yet in the Lambda front. You don't have every single one of your workloads running in Virginia? Uh, I mean, I try not to have any <laughs> workloads running in Virginia uh, for obvious reasons. Yeah. <laughs> the dumpster fire that is U.S. Virginia. Yeah, uh, I mean, I guess, I guess it solves for the... For the problem of if the Lambda function wasn't functioning well enough to log anything, then you know how do you even debug something like that? You need to start putting wrappers around it, and this this is the the free wrapper that that's sort of just you press a button and just does it for you, tells you what's coming in and out. So, yeah, I think I talked about it when this first shipped. That I was surprised uh, Palo Alto is not a partner on this yet because this seems like a perfect play for their security tool uh, that they bought uh, as part of all of their acquisitions in the cloud space. But uh, you know, interesting to see those are not here yet. So I wonder if this is just not something designed for those yet, or if that's something that'll be coming in the future that they're just waiting for. AWS Shield Threat Landscape Review for 2020, which is one of my favorite blog posts that Amazon does every year, where they give us the recap of how the Amazon Shield products have done uh, preventing DDoS attacks from taking you guys down out there in the wild of the cloud land. Uh, and so, the, you know, last year they had talked about mitigating one of the largest attacks in the in the history. I think that's now been usurped by uh, other cloud vendors who've also protected massive workloads from on Azure and GCP. Uh, so no, no big crowning achievements like that, which is not an achievement you really want. <laughs> it just means your customers are being attacked constantly. But uh, there was some good highlights here, and so I'll walk you through some of those. Uh, so they did say that they saw an increase in developers building apps on AWS and protecting their availability with AWS Shield Advanced, uh, which now includes the WAF at no additional cost. Uh, between February 2020 and April 2020, they observed a 72% increase in the monthly number of events that occurred. Uh, TCP, SYN, and flood and UDP reflection attacks were the most common infrastructure layer. And when they say infrastructure, they refer to layer three and four of the OSI model, with DNS reflection remaining the most common, with 15.5% of all infrastructure layer events detected by Shield, and TCP, SYN with, uh, being second with 13.8%. Uh, application attacks are normally in conjunction with infrastructure layer attacks, and the most common observed in 2020 was web request flooding, which is consistent over the prior years. Uh, web requests per second increased dramatically, though, between Q2 and Q3, with roughly 35,000 requests per second to over 70,000 requests per second in Q3 at the 99th percentile. Uh, AWS goes on in this article to highlight the importance of Shield, WAF, and all the other technologies to help you mitigate your cloud DNS DDoS attack vectors, and do recommend checking that out. As well as they had a little special mention here that games are particularly being attacked at a very heavy level, either for malicious reasons or to gain advantages in the game. Uh, with Between Q1 and Q2, they said 46% increase in attacks against uh, gaming apps on AWS Cloud. So pretty interesting. Yeah, I, I always use Bad Network as, uh, as a reason to bail out of games when I'm losing terribly. Yeah. <laughs> Lag. It's lagging. Yep. He's glitching. Yeah, that, uh, you wonder at what point 
enough people are going to be running tools like Shield that uh, that bad doers uh, just stop bothering with DDoS attacks. Well, when they're not successful, yeah. <laughs> when that will happen, which you know, today every day there's a press article about some of the company being attacked by a DDoS. So uh, it's still a very effective method. You know, extortion at DDoS is still very popular, as, long, as well as with malware encryption attacks as well. Yeah. It's still not the visibility into what Shield's blocking kind of in real time. I was there. So if, if I'm troubleshooting an issue of customers not being able to reach a service, for example, it's pretty hard to say, well, your traffic's not reaching here because you're being blocked by by this upstream service. I mean, I think it is if it's um, you know if it's being blocked by WAF, that does hit pretty quickly into CloudWatch logs. But yeah, you're right. If it's being mitigated because of a DDoS attack, um, that's a little bit harder to see. It's pretty impressive, though, that we don't see a ton of uh, sort of random problems here and there caused by Shield thinking that something's an attack when it's not. So the, the level of confidence you must have to actually make these decisions and then lock down the network must be must be pretty pretty good. Well, I imagine they use a lot of machine learning and AI because they can see patterns that are normal and, and expected patterns versus patterns that are not. Um, and I have heard you know some companies on launch um, have been caught, caught into a DDoS attack because of something new, a pattern they hadn't seen before, and that, that does cause a support case, uh, which is why if you have enterprise support, they recommend using IAM and all the different programs to make sure that they're prepared. Um, and you know, same thing with GCP and Azure. I think it, it could happen on any launch if you're not careful, so just be careful of those type of things. Yeah, that was the IEM, did you say? The infrastructure uh, event management. Event yeah. management, yeah. We should talk about that in one of the yeah, shows. It's part of enterprise days. support. Yeah, it's a good service. Um, yeah, yeah, if we can share, save it for when Ryan's back because he's had more experience with it than probably any yeah. of us have. Poor guy. <laughs> but, uh, <laughs> yeah, really. Poor guy. <laughs> All right, well, EKS has now added uh, support for Core DNS and Kube Proxy in the EKS console, the CLI, and the API to allow you to install and manage Core DNS and Kube Proxy in addition to the existing support for the VPC CNI networking plugin. This makes it easier to find consistent Kubernetes clusters and keep them up to date via EKS. Uh, Core DNS and Kube Proxy, of course, will provide critical networking functionality for Kubernetes applications. And when you configure via EKS, you can now select the version of the add-on you'd like and the key settings such as IAM role and add-on for the plugin, which is pretty nice. So you actually you can run that cube proxy as a different role uh, from your main container, which you could not do previously to this. So that's pretty nice. Oh, that's neat. So what's the, what's the alternative for this? I mean, I'm not a Kubernetes person. So what's how, how would you have had to do this before? You would have to define a pod and a service as part of an EKS cluster configuration and you would deploy it and then you'd be managing it yourself and keeping it up to date. And, and now this is something you don't have to manage. And it's a pretty core part of Kubernetes to use core DNS and kube proxy. So everyone has it. It's just undifferentiated heavy lifting as Amazon likes to call it. That's interesting. So so in a way, it's sort of they're not just now managing the Kubernetes as a platform, they're sort of managing the platform around Kubernetes as a, as a platform by providing these extra extra services. Well, I, you can see this being kind of a path to other potentially services that you may want to run on top of Kubernetes, like security appliances or other things that could definitely run on top of that as well. So there's lots of opportunities for this. Pretty soon, no more manifests. Just go in there and click around. Pick your stuff. <laughs> All right. That's a little too open shifty for me. <laughs> All right. Well, AWS Application Cost Profiler was launched last week, uh, which is uh, a new building block for you in the SaaS application space or if you're doing uh, pretty heavy-duty IT uh, billback work. Uh, this is a great service for you to be able to take your costs uh, and view them in an apportioned cost of AWS resources and software apps shared by multiple users or aka tenants. Uh, Software vendors can use AWS Cost Provider to get granular cost breakdown and help understand gross margin of each tenant. Uh, organizations who run software apps that shared among different teams can use AWS App Cost Profiler to find internal 
proportionate cost allocation based on usage. The AWS App Cost Profiler collects tenant metadata and reports hourly breakdowns of cost per tenant on a daily or monthly basis. And you can get detailed reports of the desired frequency and consume programmatically to build your own dashboard to track cost patterns and margins. Uh, when this first got announced, though, there was quite a bit of complaints <laughs> about this on Twitter and on the FinOps Foundation Slack channel. I was chatting with some people about this. And you know, I think the immediate hate I could boil down to is that this requires you to you know, replace the code you already have potentially written for this. And so I think this is one of those areas where this is an MVP release <laughs> for sure. Uh, and this is for customers who don't have this yet or who want to do it and need a way, a pattern to kind of get started. And eventually I assume that Amazon will make this available to, by an API or different ways that you can then take your own custom code and then plug this into it. But I don't think that's quite there yet today. But uh, I think it's a great start in the right direction because multi-tenant apps and cost management for that is very complicated. Yeah, and I've seen, uh, especially companies going from shrink wrap to SaaS business model, uh, decide on a dedicated uh, infrastructure, not de- you know dedicated as far as VMs go, um, uh, per customer and going single tenant just so that they can figure out their cost per tenant because they're concerned about the multi-tenant approach. So, uh, you know, it is, a, it is an inhibitor to actually doing things the most cost-effective way, which is counterproductive. Yeah, all you have to do is instrument your app to figure out all those costs yourself. All you're doing is publishing the, the, the raw metrics and they're aggregating the data and making it visible in a, in a nice dashboard. So, I mean, encouraging people to, to, to use the pattern, I guess, is one thing, but it's, it's not, much of a, not much of a service, I don't think. You're still doing all the work yourself. Yeah, yeah. MVP. Yeah. I mean, how could they know? How else could they know the, the inner working of your app, which which S3 objects belong to which tenant, and which you know rows in the database belong to which tenant? I mean, the, the only way this is going to work is if you if you if they encourage you to build this into your own applications. Yeah, yeah, I think you have to define it in some way. But I can see you know evolutions of this where it uses MLAI and it notices certain patterns, and then you could define you know I'd say I noticed this pattern, and you want to define what this is, and then you could you could say something, but. Um, I, I think for what this is right now and where it's at, I think it's just very MVP. Like I said, I think it has opportunities to become really interesting for some use cases. And if I was starting a brand new SaaS application, uh, I would definitely take a look at this because I don't want to build that that stuff if I don't have to. It'd be great if you're doing chargeback and then your customer disputes an invoice and the response is, ask the AI. <laughs> Alexa said, AI Alexa said correct, you owe this much. <laughs> yeah. yeah, exactly. Well, AWS Compute Optimizer has been enhanced, uh, which is a good thing. So the AWS Compute Optimizer is a service that recommends optimal AWS resources for your workloads to reduce costs and improve performance by using ML to analyze historical utilization metrics. Uh, the Compute Optimizer is launching several updates, and that includes first a quality improvement. Uh, the first one is Compute Optimizer now considers network packets per second, uh, local storage throughput, and local storage IOPS when generating EC2 instance type recommendations, giving you a better idea if your EC2 is over or under provisioned in network I.O. or local storage I.O. and optimize these resources by leveraging Compute Optimizer recommendations. The next one is that they've increased the recommendation coverage to now support over 153 different EC2 instance types, including the i3, i3e, i3en, d2, etc., and as well as the 100 gigabits networking and the high-frequency instances and the Graviton2 instances, all available through this. The recommendations insights now identifies the specific dimension that is over under provision instead of you trying to figure it out from the metrics, which was super annoying because it was like, this is under provision. You're like, go look at it. You're like, well, why? And you have to then figure that out. Like, oh, I think it might think, I think it might think it's under provision because of the CPU metric or some other metric, uh, but it was a bit of a guess. And then, of course, platform difference information for Compute Optimizer now describes the platform differences between current and the recommended EC2 instance types. So you know all of the trade offs that you're making between the recommendations, not just the one area that is over or under provisioned. 
I think this is one of the areas that people are paying two to three percent of their bill for third-party tools. So every every one of these that comes out that um, you know meets the minimum bar, I think, really uh, eliminates the need for some of those tools. Yeah, I've noticed some uh, other services I own have been uh, have had a different a different answer from this compute optimizer in the past few days as well, which has been interesting to log into the console and see that now things are considered under provisions when when previously they weren't. So I'm I'm assuming that's around the network packets a second because that's that was my constraint at least. So yeah, it's it's, it's good. Yeah, I think it's awesome. I wish I would stop making recommendations like when you have a T2 micro that you're not really using very much, that's over provision. Because <laughs> <laughs> I'm like, yeah, I know. But uh, there's nothing smaller unless you have something I don't know about. Just uh, move to Oracle. Yeah, one-eighth of a CPU. <laughs> yeah. yeah, exactly. Uh, well, AWS Outpost is launching support for EC2 capacity reservations, uh, which now allows you to create and manage reserve capacity on EC2 instances on your outposts, <laughs> which... I was like, why would I need this? I bought the outpost. It's mine. It's my capacity. It's not like some other company's going to come and steal my outpost capacity. Uh, you can apparently also share the capacity reservations on outposts with other AWS accounts within your organization. And apparently, according to Amazon, customers can choose from a variety of AWS outpost configurations, each providing a wide selection of easy to instance types where they can run their applica- applications. Some customers, however, have very specific requirements for portions of their apps that run instance type size and capabilities and need high levels of assurance that they will always be able to launch and specifically capacity on outposts. Uh, so I guess at the end of the day, there's big companies that are running shared outposts infrastructure, and one of their businesses worried about their business will use all the capacity they want reserved. And so this is really the, I don't trust my coworker, and so I want reservation. Yeah, yeah or I, I don't trust my, you know, I got dev environments that are auto-scaling and prod environments on the same physical hardware, uh, and I don't want the devs to accidentally have a runaway uh, auto-scaling event that Effects prod, maybe. I mean, that's a possibility. But then why would you run your dev? I guess maybe, maybe there's a use case for dev on-premise, I guess. But, like, you know, small little instances or containers run them in the cloud. You know, if you have a data sovereignty issue, that's why you have it in your data center, then I could see the the need to have these resources. But, yeah, at the end of the day, there's no cost for this service. So, yeah, it's, it's definitely just a I don't trust you or I have some very specific work use case. But if this was you, you're now covered by AWS. So <laughs> all the salespeople going, no, we could have sold them more outposts. <laughs> Yeah, really? <laughs> right? I, mean, I don't know what the delay on outposts is, though. Maybe maybe it's also tied to, you know, availability is limited on outposts, and so uh, they're not they're not quick to order and get shipped and delivered. Yeah. I don't know. I've never heard what the delivery times are. On I mean, those. if anything, though, I, I like it because it's it just sort of it makes everything the same everywhere. It doesn't matter if, you, if you're if you running EC2 in, in one region or another region or, or locally, you can still, you still have the same controls as you have everywhere. So I think... This kind of ubiquity of configuration is is good for everybody. Ultimately, it means means you can use the same tooling anywhere. Yeah, you should order an outpost for your garage. I'll pay for the outpost, and you pay for the power. <laughs> 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 I'm not sure which one comes out cheaper, and that's an area here in California. Well, there's, but, uh, <laughs> there's a power line not too far away, so if you if you see the coat hangers thrown up over the wires, <laughs> yeah. Tap in. yeah, nice, nice. Well, our final AWS story for the night is that the AWS region uh, or regions well, under construction are getting a new friend. So Australia, Indonesia, Spain, India, and Switzerland are all under construction. And now a brand new Middle Eastern region in the UAE, or United Arab Emirates, is now slated to open in the first half of 22. Uh, so this will be an extension of the existing investments in the UAE, which includes uh, already includes two direct connect locations and two CloudFront Edge locations, all of which have been placed since 2018. And the new region will have three AZs and will join the existing Middle East region in Bahrain. 
Oh yeah, I wonder what the the economy of that region is really going to look like, kind of post the oil um, boom. I mean, are they? Are, are, uh, do you think this 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 kind of technology deployment in in that area is going to be um, related to sort of the the changes they're going to have to make economically? Well, I mean, the UAE in particular has always you know doesn't have a huge oil supply to begin with, so they've always been very heavily invested in tourism. That's the reason why you have you know a lot of like the only seven star resort in the world. You've got uh, all of the amusement parks they put there and everything. So that's one side where they have a very heavy tourism business, especially from the UK and Europe. And the second part of it is they have all these uh, free trade zones. So basically, if you're you know a medical company, you can come set up your offices in their free trade zone, and there's tax benefits from doing that, and all kinds of uh, legal restrictions that don't exist for you in that type of situation in those free trade zones. So that's how UAE is trying to get you know out past the oil world in the future, anyways. So this is just one way for them to kind of be able to support that even better with the region in their backyard. Those services can now get faster latency or lower latency and better performance. Bahrain, I'm not sure about as much because I haven't been there and I, I don't have as much experience with it. But UAE in particular has always known the oil is going to run yeah. out yeah. at some point. <laughs> but a lot of the um, a lot of the U.S. companies that do oil and gas are also based out of Dubai. <laughs> so, you know, having this again, where, you know, all the AI and ML they use to define you know oil locations and well locations and all the outputs and inputs of that system, uh, having that as low latency is going to be super beneficial for those companies too. Hey everyone, Jonathan here. I just wanted to take a minute to thank the cloud consulting gurus at Foghorn for helping make the cloud pod possible. These folks truly get it. Cloud consulting experts since 2008, they are premier tier partners with AWS, Google Cloud Platform Silver, and Microsoft Azure partners. From multi-cloud to containers to moving full production workloads to the cloud under the tightest compliance, Foghorn's team of full-stack cloud engineers have been there, done that, gotten the t-shirt, and are ready to share their experience with you. If you're in the market for some talent to supplement your team, Visit www.fogops.io slash the cloud pod. www.fogops.io slash the cloud pod. Foghorn, the promise of cloud delivered. Well, moving on to GCP. The VM manager, which simplifies compliance with OS configurations, uh, is now adding additional capabilities to the OS configuration management, which is still in preview. Uh, OS configuration management is an important way that administrators of large fleets of VMs can automate and centralize deployment, configuration, maintenance, and reporting of software configurations of those VM instances, uh, which is really, when you read this down, it comes down to patch management and agent management. <laughs> so it installs and maintains some agents, and it installs and maintains patches, and then gives some inventory on that. The uh, new capabilities are a new UI, uh, in addition to an API and G cloud command to provide an at-a-glance compliance view of your VM fleet and the ability to drill down and find the root cause for non-compliant VMs in seconds. Uh, they've also improved the reliability with independent zonal root services, so user-controlled, safe rollout process for deploying policies, which allows them to cancel it if they see things going wrong before it affects the whole fleet. And then there are several new functions and capabilities, including a dry run, reporting mode, the ability to define, validate, and enforce compliance of custom resource periodically, as well as options to exclude or include certain VMs, such as GKE nodes, based on the label. This is all available to you, pre-built installed on most of the publicly available Compute Engine OS images from Google. Sounds really basic, but you get into big heterogeneous environments, and this is a heavy lift on a sustained basis to keep everything patched and up to date. Well, I mean, the way you kind of started solving this in the data center was you started using VMware tools to do this. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and VMware and you know, your inventory and your, your quick view and patch management stuff was all in VMware, and then you got rid of VMware when you moved to the cloud. So now I need yeah. it back. So these are these are tools to kind of help you do those things. So it's like one agent to rule them all kind of thing. One agent that sits there and makes sure all the other agents are running. 
But what makes that? What makes your that agent's running? The other agent, the water agent. Yeah. <laughs> All right. Well, uh, you know, Forrester and Magic Quadrant typically release these waves and items all the time from Gartner. Uh, and Google always likes to tout their involvement in these things. So typically they're in the leader quadrant. But then when you actually go click into the article, uh, Google is a distant third behind Azure and Amazon. But they don't mention that, of course, in their press releases. Uh, so I was pleased to see that they are again here with a uh, new wave from Forrester. This is the unstructured data security platform wave. And Google is, in fact, the leader way above Microsoft, and Amazon's not even on this chart, as well as they are a clear leader in front of McAfee, Broadcom, Proofpoint, Forcepoint, and Thales, as well as six others uh, beyond that. So pretty nice for them. And this is all really driven by their DLP capability at the end of the day. Uh, Google is pretty proud that they scored the highest possible score in the obfuscation criteria driven by their cloud DLP product that helps customers inspect and mask the sensitive data with techniques like redaction, budgeting, and tokenization, and which helps strike the appropriate balance between risk and utility. And so out of the 16 criteria, they scored five out of five on most of the categories. So pretty good job there, Google. Definitely one of those areas where I, maybe we'll see some reinforced announcements around DLP from AWS. I Ooh. surprisingly haven't got into the space already. Yeah, this is right down... Uh, Google's, uh, ah, what's the word? Right down there. Street. <laughs> in their sweet spot? <laughs> sweet spot? Yeah. That's, yeah. that's definitely in their sweet spot. Yeah. MLAI to detect uh, PII data and then obfuscate it? Yeah, this is, this is bread and butter for Google. Well, if you've ever managed a corporate firewall, uh, you know that there are a dumpster fire of rules, conflicts, shadow rules, and configuration bloat, which accumulates over time, resulting in misconfigurations and things being open or available that you didn't quite expect, uh, resulting in terrible SOC compliance requirements that require you to do a quarterly review with your security team of all your security firewall rules, uh, which is super fun when you're trying to pretend that you're actually paying attention to the thousands of rules scrolling past the screen in the meeting where you're reviewing all of the rules, uh, and that you have any context of what those rules actually are for as a network administrator, which you typically don't. Uh, and so Google has released the better way with the Firewall Insights, a new module in their Network Intelligence Center, which gives you a single console for managing Google Cloud network visibility, monitoring, and troubleshooting. The Firewall Insights gives you a metrics report and insights reports, and these two reports contain information about firewall usage and the impact of various firewall rules on your VPC network. And even better, they integrated in your GCP console for the VPC firewall and available via APIs. The metrics report allows you to verify the firewall rules are being used appropriately and as intended, and this report can uncover leftover rules from the past that are not actively used. And review the firewall rules, allow or deny what is intended, perform live debugging of connections dropped, and leverage cloud monitors to discover malicious attempts to access your network. And then the insights reports allows you to identify firewall misconfigurations, detect security attacks, and optimize and tighten your security rules. Cool. <laughs> really? <laughs> <You're wild. laughs> I, mean, I, do, I do appreciate they didn't say there's no, there's no MLAI in this that's going to automatically close firewall ports. I do appreciate that they didn't go to that extreme yet. <laughs> Yeah. I wanted to integrate like your external um, endpoint, like synthetic transaction testing, and then just just look at rules that have not been touched for a little while and and uh, remove them or disable them. Uh, but as soon as like a, if they disable one and you get back a, an application error, then it just puts it back. Oops, sorry, puts it back. It'd be perfect. <laughs> then you don't have to do anything. Awesome. I want to do another. Like a change validation type thing too. You could, you know, I rolled a change out and it just broke my, my thing. I'm going to undo your change right away. Like there's all kinds of cool things you can do. Having watch your uh, stress tests in uh, staging, figure out what yeah. rules it needs, and then just roll those out in prod. 
That's a nice idea. But of course, if you got malicious yeah. code in in uh, in the repo and it gets built and tested, then all of a sudden you're modeling the production rules on on the behavior of a system that's already potentially compromised. So it's not. I, I, I people have made the same arguments about sort of building IAM policies based on the behavior of things in lower environments. I'm like. Yes, but that's good as long as you have a really good chain of custody of the code and you can make sure that doesn't inject anything in there that they shouldn't have done. And what I think what I find interesting is you know, firewalls always used to be very sort of externally facing. It used to be, you know, protect protect our inside network from the rest of the world. But I think more and more most of these rules that are in place are actually within the network, within the VPCs, within within your own cloud environments. And you're open to the rest of the world because at that point you sort of you hand off the security from being network level security to being application application level security. That's kind of uh, throwing a wet towel on everything. I'd say we're having so much fun <laughs> inventing the <laughs> firewall that you don't have to manage, and there you go, ruining it, telling us we have to work again. It's typical for it's typical for Jonathan to. You know. <laughs> Sorry, still have to work. <laughs> yep. <laughs> Well, just in time for summer, Google is giving you three categories of BigQuery user-friendly SQL launches to keep your cool summer going. The first is powerful analytics features, which give you greater flexibility to analysts for organizing, filtering, and rendering data in BigQuery than ever before, with the amazingness of enabling a spreadsheet-like functionality based on pivots, unpivots, and qualifying data. Uh, Next up is a flexible schema handler, which allows admins and data engineers to rename tables for data pipeline processes, as well as flexible column management, which allows you to do all kinds of things like create new views with columns and do things that would normally break your database. And then new geospatial tools, which are super important and valuable in dealing with data from the physical world when you want to plot it on a map. Uh, Hopefully, though, you're enjoying the beach and not BigQuery, and so I appreciate their marketing genius who said, we'll do a really cool pun on summer and doing summertime fun with BigQuery. I'm going to pass and just enjoy the beach. Yeah, you thought pivot tables were bad. Unpivot tables, even more fun. <laughs> <laughs> that is that is awesome. I'm, I'm not sure I'm familiar with what an unpivot table is. So if you if you could summarize that, I would appreciate it because I was not entirely sure what an unpivot table was. Other than like, well, you mean I pivoted and then I yeah, I assume it, it unwraps like, unwraps summaries back into rows again. Uh, I mean, it seems pretty straightforward, yeah. I guess. But like, uh, why? <laughs> I mean, wouldn't you just do the select query? Yeah, that's kind of odd. Why well, you have to yeah. give it an? Why just write a different type of select? That <laughs> Either way, that's just we're not going to be doing this during our summer vacation. So, no. <laughs> thanks, but no thanks. My ties. That reminds me of the, the Phineas and Ferb uh, theme <laughs> song. You know, what do you do on your summer vacation? <laughs> yeah, <laughs> the clear sign that I have kids. Yeah, my kids <laughs> so wish there were 104 days in summer vacation anymore. <laughs> right, I know. You're around school. It's that's a thing. <laughs> All right, well, let's move to Azure, who had a busy week with Microsoft Build this week, of course, which is their big developer conference every year. Uh, we did not do predictions for it because Microsoft's conferences are hard to predict because sometimes they talk about nothing cloud and sometimes they talk about a lot of cloud stuff. So just uh, it's too difficult. And also, what does Azure not have that they're going to announce? You never know. Uh, but first up, before Build, they announced that they have reached their 100th compliance offering, uh, protecting data with the EU Cloud Code of Conduct. Uh, the EU Cloud Code of Conduct is developed for cloud providers to align with the EU General Data Protection Regulation, or the GDPR, as we like to call it. The EU Cloud COC is the first GDPR Code of Conduct that has received the European Data Protection Board positive opinion, which has followed the, the final approval by the Belgian Data Protection Authority. Uh, it should be noted that uh, I also had an article exactly like this from Google, uh, which then makes me think that maybe this is why France was so excited last week about uh, enabling <laughs> uh, both the Google and the Azure Cloud. And I'm not entirely sure that Amazon has this because I went and Googled. And while they are 
they're part of some EU COC thing, it is not exactly this one. So I think this is something new that maybe uh, Azure and Google beat AWS to the punch, but I'm not sure uh, yet. They, they just had to promise not to sue them if uh, they made the decision they didn't like. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. All right. Well, we can build your cloud-native applications anywhere that run anywhere. And so Azure, uh, Build This Week announced the preview of capabilities of Azure application services run on Kubernetes anywhere across Azure, on-premises, AWS, and the Google Cloud, as this connects to any CNCF compliance Kubernetes cluster connected through Azure Arc and is now supported deployment target for Azure app services. Azure app services are designed to work together and are highly optimized for developer activity, and they include the family of products, including the Azure app service, which is a managed app runtime, similar to Beanstalk, Azure Functions, Azure Logic Apps, Azure Event Grid, and Azure API Management, all available to you to run on any Kubernetes cluster on any cloud or on-premise, all through this new capability. Uh, you can also get the same productive developer experiences now working on any Kubernetes cluster, including Azure Arc, enabled Kubernetes clusters, giving you a single pane of glass with central visibility. And for customers looking for that fully managed Kubernetes control plane, they're announcing uh, the general availability of Kubernetes on Azure Stack HCI to give you that hyper-converged on-premise Azure infrastructure. I'm really surprised at how quickly all of the cloud providers have embraced and adopted running on hybrid infrastructure, running on customer-owned infrastructure, running on whatever it may be, whether it's outpost model or just customer-owned infrastructure model and get the one control plane uh, for all your Kubernetes. Uh, it's interesting that they all embrace that so quickly. I think it's kind of a sign that, that really the software wasn't the problem all along, or the hardware wasn't the problem all along, I should say. And that running running the hardware in, in racks isn't the hard part, it's actually the, the managed services on top. So yeah. by making those managed services portable to other other places now, in, in a way it's kind of, it's 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 putting hand on and saying, yeah, you know, this is the tough part. It doesn't matter where you run it, but this, this, is, the, this is the value add, really. Up next from Google Build, or sorry, Amazon, oh, Google Build, ugh. Azure Build, <laughs> Amazon and Microsoft, Microsoft Build. How do I build? Microsoft? <laughs> I don't know. Like, what are we building? Microsoft is building stuff. That's what we're doing. Several new features to empower the developers to innovate with the Azure database services, uh, including a new Azure SQL database ledger capability, which is in preview to provide cryptographic verifications for sensitive records. I mean, considering last week they killed their blockchain product, they probably should not be talking about anything with ledgers, right, at this minute. Yeah. <laughs> uh, Azure Synapse link for Microsoft Dataverse gives you immediate insights from Dynamics 365 and Microsoft Power Platform apps, while Power BI streaming removes any bottlenecks for signals to insights. And then several enhancements to Cosmos DB, including a new Cosmos DB serverless. Cosmos uh, DB integration cache is now in preview to give you integrated cache cost optimizations and boost performance for read-heavy workloads. The always encrypted for Cosmos DB now in preview. And the Cosmos DB role-based access control is generally available. And they're also expanding the Azure Cosmos DB free tier to give you a thousand uh, read uh, or RU uh, per second, which I think is read units, uh, provision through output and 25 gigabits of storage free monthly, as well as the Azure Cosmos DB emulator has now come to Linux, so you can do your local development of Azure Cosmos DB on your Linux workstation. Got nothing. Got nothing. You guys are just stunned. Stunned. Yeah, yeah. we really need to build, bring the uh, the tumbleweed sound effect back. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I haven't. Uh, I just don't. I know very little about Cosmos. It's it's like a, you know Aurora yeah. for AWS or um, Spanner for Google Cloud. It's just their customer. Well, the free tier is kind of fun. You know, it's it's. Yeah, the free tier is nice. About gigs of storage, thousand like RUs per second. Like you could do a ton of fun science projects and not have to pay any money. Yeah. Well, if you think that last story had tumbleweeds, wait till this story. 
which is, I guess, sort of in a way to prevent the tumble, uh, tumbleweeds. So Accenture, GitHub, Microsoft, uh, GitHub and Microsoft, by the way, are the same company, although they act like they're two different companies in this press release for some reason, and ThoughtWorks, uh, launched the Green Software Foundation with the Linux Foundation to put sustainability at the core of software engineering. And this is because Microsoft believes it has a responsibility to build a better future, a more sustainable future, both internally at Microsoft and in partnership with industry leaders in the globe. And they point out that data centers account for 1% of all global electricity demand. And to help with this, they're excited to announce the formation of the Green Software Foundation, uh, which I just mentioned. And the foundation aims to help the software industry contribute to the information and communication technology sector's broader target of reducing greenhouse gas emissions by 45% by 2030 in line with the Paris Climate Exchange or Agreement. And the purpose of the Green Software Foundation is to establish green software industry standards, which will create and publish green software standards, green patterns, and practices across various computing disciplines and technology domains. The group will encourage voluntary adoption and help guide government policy towards these standards for a consistent approach for measuring and reporting green software emissions. Uh, next is accelerating innovation to grow the green software field, drive awareness and grow advocacy. If they want companies to build greener applications, they need people to know how to build them first, of course, all available to you. And you can go to their website right now and sign up for their newsletter to learn what this actually means when they actually do something. Uh, but this is what it is. And I all I can think of is like, so you're anti-Bitcoin yeah, right. mining? <laughs> <laughs> like, what? I mean, I, I, I guess you want to try to eliminate, you know, opti- you know, suboptimal code that's wasting power and electricity. But at some point, it's a sunk cost in a data center. So I'm not, I'm not fully sure what this is all about, and I'm sort of intrigued to see where it goes. But uh, yeah, I was sort of perplexed by this one. How about goes. if the next partner to join is Peloton, and they put they put out a uh, a completely green developer station with the laptop <laughs> integrated with the cycle? <laughs> Sorry, you can't build that software today. You haven't you haven't cycled it miles. <laughs> I haven't done my steps. <laughs> you yeah. get your steps in. I've got my steps in today. <laughs> Yeah, so that's, that's an interesting announcement. I again, I you know, it, it seems a little bit like maybe corporate, you know, makes me feel warm and fuzzy. It doesn't actually do anything, but I'm I'm sort of intrigued to see what that happens and how it goes because uh, I don't get it. I mean, today. Well, the simple fact that companies that for-profit companies want to talk about it and are excited about talking about it, I think, is a great great thing. Yeah, I mean, and, and moving to the cloud is one way to get better optimization and better usage of resources. And like, there's there's lots of things we're doing in the technology industry. But again, but if if data center spend, or sorry, data center power consumption is one percent of the global power demand, you know, reducing that by ninety percent doesn't do a lot. <laughs> so I don't really know what we're trying to do here, what we're trying to accomplish, other than it's good practice and good for humanity and good ethically to do it in general. I hope though that if you know if they if they come up with technology advances that that help then you know those technology advances could be made available to other markets it's like the space program you know what are you doing up there well we figured stuff out and now we can do all sorts of cool stuff here on earth yeah i mean if you could use technology to basically reduce you know energy consumption and other solutions maybe then that's kind of interesting but yeah, it's uh, it's quite interesting. Yeah, I mean, why why use Google Docs when you can use a typewriter or a pen and paper? Yeah, really. Like, <laughs> <laughs> what what's the, what are the limits mm, they're looking true. at here exactly? I wish I wish there were some examples. I guess in the press release to say, well, this is an example of software that we think isn't green. I mean, Bitcoin's one thing. That's that that that's its own argument, and the, you know, there's arguments for and against that because of the cost of running the regular currencies. But I mean. Yeah, like yeah. Well, I, I wish it was a concrete example of like this is the kind of thing that we will will try and avoid in the future. But there's really not. So I don't know. I mean, what if software 
manufacturers were making more. Go back to the day when you had to write really efficient software because you had no RAM and you had no and you had no CPU. And then go back to that where it's now a priority to write lean software that needs 20% less compute to run. And then that might, you know, expand to all sorts of uh, compute that's outside the data center. I'm trying here. I'm, trying. I, I, I'm working with you. So I, I want to go, I want to go look. Uh, so, you know, a very suspect Wikipedia article for domestic energy consumption of the United States in 2008 says that heating was the number one consumer of electricity in the United States, followed by hot water, followed by cooling and refrigeration, and then lighting. Uh, and, you know, technology was on top of that list. So, again, I'm curious what this means in practice, but I, I don't know yet. Well, of course, Microsoft Build has to belittle their core audience by talking about no-code solutions. <laughs> and so they are pleased to announce that they are bringing uh, GPT-3 to add AI features to the Power Apps. Uh, and Microsoft demoed some of its new Power App capabilities powered by GPT-3, the natural language model developed by OpenAI. Uh, Microsoft says it will make building apps without need to know how to write code or formulas, and the features are set to launch in North America for English at the end of June. And Microsoft says the GPT-3 uh, will be integrated deeply with Power Apps, so it's a low-code app development platform, specifically for formula generation. And there's a quote here from Charles Lamana, CVP of Microsoft's low-code app platform. Using an advanced AI model like this can help our low-code tools become even more widely available to an even bigger audience by truly becoming what we call no-code. Uh, this will allow people to query and explore data in ways they literally couldn't do before, and this that will be the magical moment. In all cases, there's a human in the loop. There is, this isn't at all about replacing developers. It's about finding the next 100 million developers in the world. So, so, so you, you, think there are people, you think there are people right now like with resumes touting the fact that there are no-code developers? Like, I'm a developer who doesn't write any code. Hire me. Yeah, I would love to see. Yeah, that. I mean, instead, awesome. of, instead of a degree in computer science or something, you need PhDs in English now just to make sure you can specify the exact no code that you need based on the requirements. Because if you yeah. you get a word out of place, you're going to get the wrong <laughs> the wrong piece of software. <laughs> well, that's not what you said. It just, it just, it, Sounds like code. Yeah, it's me. just funny to me that you go to a developer conference and then you tell them about how you're trying to get rid of their jobs. Yeah, <laughs> it's just it's awesome. Yeah. Uh, well, apparently, you know, not only do they want to get rid of your jobs, they also want to make sure that they are discovering, improving, and amplifying the developer work and well-being, which I read as get as much work productivity out of the developer for every hour they're in the office possible. <laughs> and so that is with the announcement of a new research lab, uh, which studies developer productivity and well-being. And the lab will seek input from GitHub, Visual Studio, and Microsoft Research, as well as external contributors to look at new ways to measure and enhance developer productivity, highlight how developers collaborate and share knowledge around software projects, and investigate the happiness, satisfaction, and personal value in relation to software development. Uh, apparently, the first paper from the DVL has been already published, and that is called The Space of Developer Activity. Uh, there's more to it than than you think, uh, which I went and checked out. Uh, it is actually uh, authored by Nicole Forsgren, which I have mad respect for. Um, so maybe this isn't quite as silly as we made it out of sound, but uh, I am curious to see what happens with this long term because that that announcement of this does not make me excited about it in any way. But the outcome of this, if it does produce uh, really quality content from Nicole, I think is going to be awesome. We'll see what happens. Indeed, we will. Yeah, so on one hand, we're taking away the jobs. On the other hand, we, we care about the way they, they feel at work. I'm like, eh, he couldn't... <laughs> Which is it? <laughs> Beatings will yeah. continue until Can't. morale improves. <laughs> until you're de until you're delivering a thousand lines of code per minute, and then we'll be fine. <laughs> I'm much happier since I didn't have to write any code anymore. Yeah. Well, I have an Oracle story, guys. Yes, I like this one. Finally. Finally, one I'm actually excited about. 
so, you know, this is about ARM processing on the Oracle cloud. Uh, so Oracle is uh, here to enable the transition to an ARM-based process. And to make this possible, they plan to address every aspect of the challenge of offering the best ARM-based server platform possible, providing easy access to all developers and open source projects to develop and test on ARM, working with partners to enable ARM community, and contribute to the ARM ecosystem directly with their investments in some of the most important technologies in the industry. And then they go on to complement AWS, being the first cloud provider to offer ARM instances with Graviton, and most recently Graviton 2. They've done an excellent job pioneering ARM ARM server CPU. Direct words from the press no release. Way. They're just doing that for SEO. Like, yeah. if anyone says you grab it on two, they're going to hit our article. Okay. Yeah, yeah, we want that. Yeah, for sure. <laughs> but, you know, still, like, you could have just mentioned Amazon has a, as an inferior product called Graviton 2 and got the same SEO. So. Uh, Oracle is not going to build their own ARM chips, though, they've announced. They're going to partner with Ampere instead of designing it. Uh, Ampere has designed an industry-leading ARM-based server chip with the Ampere Ultra, which offers predictable performance with the most cores per socket. Uh, and Oracle's pleased to announce their new Oracle Cloud infrastructure Ampere A1 compute platform based on the Altera is available now. Uh, available in several options, including the bare metal option, which gives you the maximum performance with 160 single-threaded cores up to 3 gigahertz in performance and 1 terabyte of RAM for each core. Uh, each core is single-threaded by design with its own 64-kilobyte L1i cache, 64-kilobyte L1d cache, and a huge 1-megabit L2d cache, delivering predictable performance 100% of the time, and avail also available in flexible VM shapes, with exclusive flexible architecture for provisioning 1 to 80 cores and 1 to 64 gigs of memory per core. Fully integrated with GitHub, GitLab, and Jenkins, and the OCI Ampere A1 is the first PennyCore cloud service uh, at any at, at, at only a point zero one or one penny per core hour at and fifteen point uh, zero zero one five per gigabyte of RAM per hour, and you can start for free with the free tier. With additional free resources available for qualified developers, ISVs, and universities from their ARM accelerator program. And then, of course, they give us uh, benchmarks where they show their chip beating the crap out of the Graviton two <laughs> uh, by apparently two point six to five point seven x of the Spec Crate twenty seventeen integer price performance test. And the Spec Crate 2017 floating point, it beat it by 2.5 to 6.1x. Uh, so lots of great charts if you're into charts. Uh, they also compared it to AMD and Intel chips, which they did not crush them quite as much as I would have expected. Uh, but you know, ultimately, the thing I want to talk about the most is the free tier, which is awesome. <laughs> uh, you get four ARM-based Ampere A1 cores and 24 gigabytes of memory usable. It's either one VM or divvy up into four VMs, all available to you in the free tier. Uh, and this is GC, you know, this is free forever. They don't have the BS where Amazon does it for 12 months or any of that kind of stuff. This is free forever. So you could literally just go spin this up right now. No credit card or wire. Get four VMs or one big one and then go dedicate all that compute capacity to some nonprofit that you're super excited about who's got uh, workloads they're trying to do, like SETI at home or some other, some other thing like that. Uh, and in comparison, the GCP doesn't even offer you an ARM-based uh, free tier. And AWS's free tier, which is the T4G, uh, is only 0.2 of an ARM vCPU and only available to until June 30th uh, with no other free tier option available. So uh, pretty great if you're interested in ARM and you really want to play with it and you want more than you know a limited window of time. I think this is pretty awesome. And if the performance is actually what it is, you know, it isn't just totally biased towards this chip, uh, the performance would be great too. That's an incredible difference. And usually when you see that, there's some shenanigans going on in the background. But uh, I think that I guess we'll find out sooner rather than later. Yeah, I mean, like this one here is 110 for the Graviton and 291 for the Ampere. So, I mean, like that's it's almost... 3x yeah the performance for this one test so just really quite yeah, crazy we'll, we'll see how we'll see how that actually pans out i guess with with some 
Yeah, I'm waiting for the you know Amazon response about how Ampere is not as good as Graviton 2 or <laughs> whatever else. Yeah, maybe. I mean, everything's got its own. But what's interesting about this is that in the AWS Community Builders um, ARM Graviton chat room, I mean, it's it's sad, but the recommendation because of the very poor free offering from Amazon around Graviton T4Gs is that if you're going to do with, use use these for any kind of development work, spin up some Oracle workloads, do you know build do builds in Oracle, and then sure maybe move to AWS for production workloads later. But mm. it's um, I mean, it's 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 uh, like egg on their face really to to have their their own community telling people to go and spin up ARM instances in another provider. Yeah. But having said that, I'm sure Oracle are paying a whole lot more to Ampere than uh, than AWS are for the same compute. So as far as margins go at the end of the quarter, I think Amazon's going to be better off. I mean, it's possible. You know, it's also a high likelihood that Ampere could get bought by Google yeah. or sorry, by Oracle mm-hmm. at some point. Uh, you know, that's an easy way to solve that problem. <laughs> I just remember back in my desktop building days, every provider found a way to make charts like this for their version of their gaming system. <laughs> so we'll see. All right. Well, that's it for new news this week. And we're going to the lightning round. Lightning round. All right. Only two competitors today. Let's well, uh, that's, that's to be seen. There may only be one. <laughs> oh, <Uh-oh. laughs> <laughs> oh boy. Okay. Here we go. Starting off with Amazon Forecast, which now supports generating predictions for five times more items using three times more historic data points. I mean, again, if it can predict it, it should have already known that it could do this out of the box. Yep. Throw five times more darts, hit five times more targets. Yeah. Hey. Yep. We'll do it. Amazon Elastic File System now supports longer resource identifiers, which is what we've always wanted. Oh, thank God, that big number. I thought that was my bill, <laughs> not just the identifier. I, I just don't get this. It was like years ago when EC2 were talking about t- turning the, the instance IDs into these long things. EFS hasn't been around for anyone near that long, yet they started off with the short IDs. I just don't, I just don't get why, why anyone cares. Yeah. You'll never need more than, what was it, 640K of RAM <laughs> or 64K of RAM probably. Yeah. Uh, AWS X-Ray now supports VPC endpoints. If only it was really a true X-ray of VPC endpoints, because those are just magic. I'd love to see how it works inside. Me too. Announcing enhancements to Amazon recognition text detection, where we have support for more words, higher accuracy, and lower latency. And yet, the police officers still can't use it. (laughs) Sorry. Uh, Amazon CloudWatch Application Insights now supports container monitoring. I mean, it's a container. What do you really want out of it? It's going to be slow. It's going to be fast. It's going to be one of the two. You just proved it to me. Now I have to go fix my container, and I'm not happy about it. So there you go. Customizations for AWS Control Tower version 2.1 adds more scaling optimizations and improves compatibility with AWS Code Build. Because... I want code build to drive my control tower. That's never a good scenario. Everybody pushing this code build thing. I don't know anybody who uses it. Keeps featuring in press releases. Someone's got to use it. I mean, I'm sure Amazon uses it. So they're like, well, if we can get other people to use it, then we can reduce our ROI on, you know, which is costing us to run our own build tools. <laughs> so anyone, please use it so you can help Amazon keep using code build. The Amazon Event Bridge now supports sharing events between event buses in the same account and region. 
You mean there might be a use case where I want to send messages to my own systems and my own account? Huh. So weird. <laughs> Amazon SageMaker Pipelines is now integrated with, yeah, you guessed it, Amazon SageMaker Experiments. I mean, definitely there's been some pipes I've seen in the world where you pack a lot of weird things into it. And that's definitely an experiment. <laughs> Not sure if the guy are they meant to have, but, you know, there you go. Oh, my goodness. Amazon Bracket introduces Quantum Circuit Noise Simulator DM1. Amazon Bracket doesn't introduce Quantum Circuit Noise Simulator. Some of the time. AWS Transfer Family now supports Microsoft Active Directory. Because what's better than ancient technology like SFTP, but an ancient technology like Active Directory shoved together? Ooh, yeah. Marriage made in heaven. Amazon EMR now supports Amazon EC2 on-demand capacity reservations, hopefully including outposts. I mean, it didn't mention outposts, so that's Sorry, that unknown was me. at that this was point. A, that was parentheses. Peter, comment. <laughs> I mean, it just, it's an arm and a leg, however you look at it. Uh, the Microsoft build of OpenJDK is now generally available. I think you said that wrong. I think it was Microsoft build of Open Just Kidding is now generally available. <laughs> just kids kidding. Public preview announcement of Azure Confidential Ledger. So confidential, they didn't know they just killed the other quantum ledger yeah. database they had. Yeah. I had a, we had to this twice a day just because it was such a good job. Yeah. <laughs> they just killed the last product. <laughs> yeah, no, but you can you can trust this one's going to be around for a while. Something great product to it. And to wrap it up, Google now allows you to test Dataflow pipelines with the Cloud Spanner emulator. I mean, we definitely need to figure out how to make this work for Jonathan's lightning round jokes. You know, so you can, you can test those through the data flow pipeline. Uh, I've had the life sucked out of me today. I've just got no showing off is just it's as good as I can do. <laughs> I think you did a good job. You made it through. That's all that matters. I did. I'm here. I'm here. And you know who thanks you the most? Uh, well, Ryan thanks you for making sure there's three of us when he's on vacation. And Justin thanks you for giving him an easy win in the lightning round. <laughs> Everybody appreciate it. So, so what did he win for exactly? <laughs> I'm just, I'm just kidding. <laughs> <laughs> I was say, oh, I laughed hard at which one did I laugh hard at? Oh, the uh, Amazon uh, EFS Elastic File System. Yeah. I, thank goodness, I thought that was my bell. That was a good one. Yeah. All right. Well, that is it for the main show. Uh, things coming up again. The new Applied ML from Google Cloud is on June 10th. Do so check that out. And the Digital Manufacturer Summit on June 22nd. Again, if you want to go to hell in August, uh, you can go to Amazon Reinforced to, to, in Houston, uh, where you will be very hot and very humid and very cranky learning about security and maybe a DLP solution. You never know. It might happen. Uh, I've predicted it only three times and been wrong every time. So, you know, see if I if I go with that or not uh, here in the future. And uh, that's uh, all the things that are coming up in the short term. So do check those out. And if you have an event that you'd like us to mention here on the show, we would love to mention your event here. Uh, so do send us a note at the contact form on our website um, or on our Slack channel, and I will include your event as long as it's two weeks in advance. If it's next week, I can't help you because we don't record that quickly and publish. Uh, so if it's two weeks in advance, I'm happy to pimp your event. Just tell me all about it and why it's cool and why you should go, and I will do so. And that is it for another week in the cloud. Awesome. See you next week. Good night. And that is The Week in Cloud. We'd like to thank our sponsor, 
Foghorn Consulting. Subscribe on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts and tweet us your feedback at hashtag thecloudpod. Or join our Slack channel. Go to our website, thecloudpod.net, for sign-up instructions. Mm-hmm.